Well, hello, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us for this Kennan Institute Facebook Live broadcast. I'm Matt Rajansky, director of the Kennan Institute. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Mark Galliotti, whom I'll introduce in just one moment. Um, first, uh, let me note that uh, right now on the Kennan Institute website, you can find um, a lively exchange of views on the Afghanistan bounties uh, story, which appears to be an ongoing uh, an open question, uh, both about the underlying facts, the implications, et cetera, and you'll find perspectives from uh, a wide range of Kennan affiliated scholars, including uh, current and former uh, military officers. Um, so I encourage you to take a look at that and then also uh, to tune in to our Kennan X podcast and Russia File podcast, which are producing uh, new episodes every couple of weeks, all linked off of our website. Throughout the program today, if you have questions, please email them to kennan at wilsoncenter.org, post them on our Facebook page, uh, and please include your name and affiliation when sending questions. It just makes it uh, more likely that we will get to your question. So today, as I said, I'm joined by Dr. Mark Galliotti, who's director of Mayak Intelligence Consultancy and is an honorary professor at the University College London School of Slavonic and East European Studies. He is a senior fellow at the Institute for International Relations in Prague, and also with RUSI, the Royal United Services Institute. Uh, he spent time at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office of the UK as an advisor on Russian foreign and security policy, and served as visiting professor of public security at the School of Criminal Justice. And he is the, the author of numerous books, um, including The Vori, Russia's Super Mafia, which I'm pleased to say uh, is, on my, uh, is, is on my nightstand at this moment, um, and a short history of Russia, uh, which I understand has been released this week. So uh, Mark, perhaps we'll, we'll talk to us a little bit about that. I want to launch our conversation, though, if I can, Mark, um, by asking this you know, foundational question, which is, what is the relationship between what we think of as the intelligence community, the spooks, in Russia today? with power in Russia? Is it, is it simply one in the same as some have presented it? Uh, is it, it a little bit more uh, multivariegated than that? Uh, or is there in fact, as there would have been in Soviet times, uh, you know, sort of a political level of power and then you know, intelligence which serves that power? Well, delighted to be here. Um, this is not like Soviet times. Soviet times, you had the Communist Party. You know, the Communist Party that was exceedingly jealous of its control of power and made a point of being absolutely in charge of the security apparatus. A few times that slipped slightly, but essentially it managed to do that. What we have now is actually a much more of a political structure of the court, I would suggest, uh, surrounding the Tsar. It's not quite as personalized as that, but the point is you have multiple institutional, personal, factional, even philosophical interests trying to promote themselves promote their ideas and so when we come to the spooks i've always been quite cautious about this term siloviki men of force men of power um even though we use it as a convenient catch-all because it implies much much more commonality in fact each of the different institutions is constantly competing. I mean, there's a very deliberate decision to have overlapping and frankly cannibalistic competition between them. So they are all trying to basically demonstrate their particular value to the boss. But also we see all kinds of factions that cross cut um, within and even between different institutions. So I think it's actually a very, very complex amalgam. Of course, they have a particular type of power. 
and they can deploy that, they can monetize that, they can use that to have to get influence with the boss or whatever. But the point is they are in an environment where there are many other people. Um, you know, Sechin is Sechin. Maybe once upon a time he was a GRU officer. His power is not based on that. His power is based on the fact that Putin trusts him, that he, Putin, mm -hmm. he was Putin's loyal bagman and pencil sharpener. And now that he is in charge of one of the big cash cows of, of the Russian state. So there's all different types of power. I mean, in some ways, this is a very, very unsatisfying answer. I would love to be able to give you that nice, sharp one-liner that says, absolutely, this is a, a KGB state, or they are just simply the loyal henchmen of Putin or whatever. It's not. This is a very, very messy political system, and they are amongst the messiest actors within it. Doesn't this, give this you much brings, to go on, does it, really? No, no, no this, is, this is perfect, though, Mark, because uh, it brings us right to a, a point I wanted to raise, uh, which is a piece that you had, I believe, yesterday or today in the Moscow Times, uh, wherein uh, you make this uh, Im important distinction between the fact of uh, an influential Russian's having been in the security services uh, as a road to power versus the fact of an influential Russian having had pro uh, proximity to Putin via the security services as being a road to power. In fact, it seems like it really is the epitome of a personalist regime where it really is all about that closeness to Vladimir Putin. Um, is that a way of, in fact, diminishing the importance of uh, you know, with the famous John McCain line, looking into Putin's eyes and seeing three letters, which happened at that point already to be outdated letters, KGB, right? Um, is it in fact that this is, this is the regime, as you said, sort of of Tsar Putin, and therefore it's the, it's the circles of power around Putin that really matter and not which emblem you're wearing uh, on your shoulder boards? Yeah, because the interesting thing is, if we actually look at the, the, the chiefs of the agencies, there's very little to suggest that they are personally that powerful. I mean, even if one looks at the FSB, which is undoubtedly the, the most important of all of these, um, I mean, Botnikov has a certain weight, but in many ways, he is essentially a client of the Secretary of the Security Council, Nikolai Patrushev, who, who is the fairy godfather um, of, of the FSB and the person who has the real connection with, with Putin. Yeah, so I think, these are alternative routes. And if one looks at the elite, I mean, there are some who precisely, they go back to KGB days, whether because they just simply were, were serious KGB officers or because they actually served with Putin. There are those who are the St. Petersburg contingent whom he met in the 1990s. Um, there are those who are his childhood friends. There are those who actually he encountered later. This is the essence of, of, of a personalistic regime, is that there's a whole variety of ways into that connection. Shoigu, um, who was not one of Putin's nearest and dearest, but a very, very highly regarded fixer. Well, he worked out actually that his way into that is not only through that great sort of source of social mobility in Russia, ice hockey, um, but also taking Putin hiking in his native fever and then making sure that there's the suitable photo opportunities are made in which Shoigu is always keen to ensure that Putin is center stage. I mean, there are all different ways of basically pandering to the personalized regime. And yes, because Putin has his background in KGB, briefly in the FSB, I mean, I, I kind of have this throwaway line in my book, we need to talk about Putin, saying, you know, he was never a great KGB officer, but he is the great spook fanboy. And I think that actually still holds true. I think Putin likes being connected with these people. 
But again, that's a very emotional rather than a hard-headed political calculation. Mark, this is a wonderful point because it gets me thinking about uh, an issue that we at the Kennan Institute, that uh, I and my work, my colleague Isabella Zaborowski, have, have paid attention to for many, many years that I think suddenly, maybe in the last year, but certainly in the last month since Putin published his article, has gotten tons of attention, and that's the issue of historical narrative. Um, the reason I connect these two topics, right, so, so, so Putin is a man obsessed, I think, with historical narrative, and increasingly uh, he runs a regime that's absolutely preoccupied, or at least that is uh, driven toward historical narrative, both shaping it in a contemporary context and uh, and, and defining it vis-a-vis -vis the past, important events in the past, principally World War II. Um, what you, in effect, are telling me is that even the, the, the culture of espionage or, or the industry of spying that Putin ostensibly came from is, is more about narrative than it actually is about, like, skill set, right? Because so many people have made this argument that what Putin does today is all about what spies are trained to do. But it sounds like you're in effect saying, no, it's really more cultural than that. It's about being a big fan of this type of worldview. And then he, so, so I guess my question for you would be, all right, well, how does that play out then? How does he behave differently than if, for instance, you were to take um, you know, an intelligence agency today and give them full power over the state? What's the difference between Putin's regime and a regime that would actually be run by a professional intelligence service. Well, I remember once talking to someone who retired now, but he had been in the Federal Security Service during the brief period, the year when Putin was its director. And it was quite interesting because you know, he said that there was, you know, there was a certain amount of enthusiasm for him because he, you know, he was relatively young and, and he was clearly very enthusiastic for the service, which is always, always good. But the the implication of what he was saying, and he wasn't going to quite sort of come out, but when, when, when nudged and when sufficient drinks were bought, um, he was more saying that the thing about Putin was he has never been a high-ranking manager within the KGB. Um, you know, his, his career was, was fairly mediocre, in, in largely in, in Dresden and so forth. He didn't really understand how the Lubyanka worked. And as a result, it was actually very difficult for him to truly get control over the FSB because basically it has its own way of working. You need to know, you know who, who works well with whom, what are the pitfalls. You know, if all you're doing is just being, being briefed by people, it's very hard when they're smart, intelligent briefers to know what is not being said. And, so forth. and I think this has actually been very, very manifest, I think, you know, in, in his rule. And particularly as over time, like most authoritarian leaders, he becomes something of a caricature of himself. And his circle becomes more and more um, about uh, becoming an echo chamber rather than of people who will really question his, his mindset, his worldview. And I think the problem is this, that what happens now is that the intelligence services are disproportionately important in painting a picture of the world for Putin. And again, you know, you, you can talk to Russian diplomats who feel very disconsolate about the extent to which they feel that, frankly, um, Putin's more likely to listen to the FSB, the domestic security service, about what's going on in the outside world than he is to his own personal diplomats. I mean, we have seen Lavrov, a diplomat who once upon a time was, was a legend in his world, so almost, almost visibly shrink in these past six years. Um, so I think this is the key issue. Um, when you have um, a chief executive who 
doesn't have, I mean, there is no such thing as a national security advisor in the Russian system. The closest there is, is the Secretary of the Security Council, Patrushev, who is not only steeped in being a spook himself, but frankly is so hawkish as to make Putin look relatively dovish. I mean, Patrushev is the guy who really scares me in this system. Um, but anyway, so that's, that's the person who he would turn to for his, in effect, fact-checking of what the intelligence agencies tell him. We know that he very, very quickly, you know, he, he, unlike certain other chief executives, he reads his daily briefs very, very assiduously. Um, and again, he pays attention to what the spooks are telling him. And anyway, let's that set the, the agenda for the day rather than waiting until hearing what his diplomats or his economists are telling him. So I think this is the thing. He doesn't understand the limitations of the spook mindset and he too unhesitatingly accepts and imbibes their often quite zero-sum and conspiratorial view of the world because that's what they're mm -hmm. what, that's how they're trained to think mm -hmm. so so in a world in which information in fact is power it's interesting that putin chooses as his source of information uh, a relatively narrow set of actors and that may be reflective of that almost romantic preoccupation it's as if he's an ian fleming fan who you know uh becomes the prime minister of the UK or something like that. Um, so let's turn to this question, because I think you, you, you've even begun to open it up uh, of initiative and, and where initiative resides, uh, you know, for intelligence gathering, but also for covert action. This is a question that we just keep encountering uh, in, in public debates, including recently about the Afghan bounty story and so forth. Um, if, if there's a two-way street, and, and an open question, I suppose, is, is there really a two-way street between the intelligence services and Putin? Um, on, on which kinds of issues does it go all the way to Putin? Where, where does the emergence of an opportunity, the emergence of a threat, need to be run all the way up the chain before a decision can be taken to handle it in the, in the ways in which the services can? First of all, let me just make a note about, you mentioned sort of covert action, active measures and so forth. I think there's a really important point here, which is again, a conceptual point. We often have to run into trouble because we automatically look for analogies. Oh, well, the Foreign Intelligence Service, the SVR, that's kind of like the CIA and so forth, or MI6. What we really have to understand is that I think at the moment in the current state of the Putin's regime, um, the Kremlin, at least, if not, I mean, I'm not saying all Russians by any means, quite the opposite, but the Kremlin, I think, is in a kind of a wartime mode. They see themselves as being, in effect, um, at war with the West, and when they say the West, they basically mean the United States and its hangers-on and clients, um, to preserve the cultural integrity of Russia, to preserve Russia's status as a great power, that you know, basically that is more or less its birthright won by the blood of the fallen of the great patriotic war and so forth and that we in the west are basically trying to deny them that now we, we don't have to accept that to i think to to acknowledge that, that is really how it's seen and therefore the intelligence services like any in wartime are seen not just as primarily intelligence mm. gathering agencies you know that is the, the, the ultimate purpose of most intelligence services but also as executive arms. This is a central part of their job, not just to report on the world, but to change the world. So absolutely, this is a, a crucial element. And at the same time, generally speaking, Putin has adopted uh, a quite hands-off style of, of government. I mean, he's, he's, he's expressed his views about how much he does, dislikes manual control as, as a method. 
Um, and in what could be considered to be really quite an ingenious system, I mean, this is very much one that encourages a lot of initiative from below. That intelligence agencies, uh, bureaucrats, business people, all kinds of different actors, they have a sense of what Putin wants. He sets broad agenda. And they will try and come up with ways in which they can actually advance that agenda. And if they fail, then frankly, the state doesn't care. It has genuine deniability. It's put no resources into it. If they succeed, the state will reward them. Um, and I think that's something that, that, that we see on a whole variety of, of, of different theatres, from, from disinformation to business penetration to whatever. I think it also applies to the intelligence community. I mean, it is clear that a lot of activities are not run from the top. There is no grand plan. There is not something in a drawer in Putin's office which gives you the sort of five-year plan for how you will subvert the West and conquer the world or anything like that. Um, instead, there is a sort of broad set of sort of policy objectives and, and, and you know, they're encouraged to, to push that forward. And again, because this is a competitive environment, they're encouraged to take risks. Um, they are more likely to be penalized for missing an opportunity than they are taking a risk and failing. Um, we've seen that with, with the GRU and the multiple times they've actually been sort of caught. Um, and on the whole, as a service, they have not suffered from it. So I think most of these things do not go up to Putin's desk. The things that do, I would say are obviously the kind of major operations which, if they go wrong, will have an international blowback. Um, you know, I, I would say assassinations, attempted coups, attempts to try and sort of make, have some major political impact. I think they, they have to have some kind of sign-off. And the second area where definitely is, is where you need to have some kind of interagency cooperation. And again, this is one of the kind of the controls on the system. The GRU can come up with their own bright idea and try and push it through. But the point at which they're going to need to have the Foreign Intelligence Service or the Ministry of Foreign Affairs or, or, or even the army involved, well, usually that has to go up the chain of command to get the OK and then the orders come down. Um, but as I said, I mean, I think this is, this is a very um, diffuse decision making system where Putin you know, absolutely almost regarded it as a virtue not to be too involved. I mean, the things he, he gets really involved in, obviously, are sort of, you know, grand policy, things that have sort of a key foreign policy impact, or frankly, the um, disposition of major government contracts, because that's clearly how he keeps power, by apportioning them to his friends. Mm -hmm. I, I want to talk about, you raised risk appetite. I think this is an extremely important question in the Russian system, and it in particular for intelligence services, as well as Siloviki, the, the term you used earlier more broadly. But, but hold that for just a moment and um, dispel the myth that may have, uh, many may, may entertain and maybe was created or uh, reinforced a little bit by what you said about Patrushev. Are there others in the system who may be so influential by virtue of the impression that they carry Putin's imprimatur that they also could approve, initiate, um, you know, mobilize operations without necessarily bringing them to Putin and then, and then put Putin in a corner where he has to ratify what they've done. That argument has been made before about Sechin, as, as you may have seen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I mean, obviously it's very, very hard to know. This is the, the blackest of black boxes. The people who really inside the system do not talk. They don't write memoirs. They don't on the whole give interviews. 
um, maybe someday we or our descendants will get to see the papers, but, but at the moment we don't know. But even Sechin, I, I, I don't get the sense that actually he is able to um, put Putin to corner. I think the only person who can probably do that actually is Ramzan Kadyrov. Um, who's probably the only guy who Putin thinks is genuinely indispensable other than himself, because basically they're terrified of another Chechen war and they feel he's the only person who keeps, keeps chaos at bay, which is why he gets away with quite literally murder. Um, but even if one looks at Sechin, I mean, for example, Sechin is clearly driving Venezuela policy. Um, I mean, that's, that's absolutely kind of accepted, even within, frankly, the, the, the Russian MFA. Um, but even then, I imagine you know, he must have some sense of, of the limits. I mean, in a way, one of Sechin's great strengths is precisely how well he knows the boss, how well he knows what he can get away with. With Ulyukhaev, um, when, when you actually have a minister being framed and, and arrested, um, you know, a lot of people were wondering, is this the time when Sechin has gone too far? He didn't. I mean, he, you know, he, he, he weathered that. So, so far, at least, he's, he's managed to demonstrate a sort of a, a good skill. I, I, I don't think it's a wise move to box Putin into a corner. I don't think that could be considered to be a, you know, a long-term career strategy. Um, you might get away with it today, but this, in this particular political system, I mean, again, I, I go back to using this word cannibalistic because I think it is the best way of describing it. In doing so, you empower your enemies so, you know, maybe you'll get away with it today, but what happens going to happen next week? Who knows? Okay, let's, let's take on this question of risk, uh, inter-service rivalry. Uh, just w what limits are there on, on what these folks are willing to do, either internal or external? Again, I think the, the, the limits are doing something which is going to displease the boss which is one of the sort of difficult things because it's not like a nice set piece. Oh, well, you know, you can beat people up, but you can't kill them or, or anything like that because clearly people do get killed and so forth. Mm -hmm. I, th I think the limits are absolutely the, the, the question of what is an acceptable level of um, payoff compared, compared with the danger. Um, I mean, this, you know, to go on to the sort of the, the, the issue of the day, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I am, unconvinced still about the notion of bounties being paid for, for Americans um, in, in Afghanistan. I mean, the Russian state kills people, of which there's no question. People it tends to kill are people it regards as traitors. In other words, those who are once its own. We're talking about Chechens. We're talking about, uh, you know, moles within its own intelligence service. Um, not foreigners. I mean, the last time we sort of heard the suggestion of that was this rather bizarre case in Prague where they were meant to be trying to kill the mayor of, of, of Prague and, and two other elected politicians, that turned out to be a bogus story. Um, in this case, look, I have no doubt that there's a whole host of Russian intelligence officers, particularly from military intelligence, GRU, um, scampering around Afghanistan at the moment, building networks of allies and contacts. And the way you do that in Afghanistan now, just as British political officers were doing in the 19th century, is precisely by offering gold, guns, and the chance of plunder. So of that, I have no doubt. But the thought of actually being involved directly in, in killing Americans, that, I think, would be considered to be a massive risk, because it is politically incredibly potentially explosive. And, and I think one of the things we have seen is that actually Putin, for all his bad boy theatricals, is actually very risk averse. He moves when he thinks he can play out the outcome. 
Now he can get it wrong, as we've seen, for example, in, in Donbass. Um, but nonetheless, I, I feel that he does sort of have that sense of considerable caution about prodding the United States. He's aware of just how much more powerful the United States is, that, that Russia today is not the Soviet Union. So I think this is it. It's, it's, it's an interesting level of risk calculus. They, they, they do what they think they can get away with. And sometimes they'll, they'll get it right. Often they will, because they have a tendency to think that we are fairly flabby in our response, which we often are. At times, and I'm thinking of particularly the, the attempted Skripal assassination in the UK, they will miscalculate and they will get burnt and they will think, well, they will regroup and they will think, is this the new normal or was this just a one-off? And they will test the water. And if they think, oh, thank God for that, it was a one-off. And I think that is what they're thinking. Then they will get back to business as usual. Mark, what about on the, on the inside game, uh, both the inter-service rivalry, what's fair game? I mean, just how ready are uh, these, um, you know, service chiefs to undermine one another and how much does an overall esprit de corps just self-interest dominate? And, and then even outside um, the, the inter-service rivalry, to what degree are the services used in the power games uh, among those, you know, one layer or two layers below Putin? And I'm, I'm thinking of the possible Rogozin connection uh, to the uh, Safronov arrest, you know, yeah. but whatever direction you want to go with that. No, I mean, I think you might say so long as it does not destabilize the state domestically, pretty much anything goes, alas. We have seen, I mean, if you can go back to sort of the, the earlier, the great Silovic wars that were taking place subterraneously between, largely between the FSB and the no longer existing FSKN, the anti-narcotic service, um, you know, there you, you, you had people um, arresting each other's officers. You had people turning up dead in a ditch. We don't know for certain what happened, but we can have a fairly informed speculation. Um, so I think you know, the inter-service rivalries can get absolutely very, very vicious. And in a way, Putin is willing to allow that to happen up to the point where he begins to regard the cost as being greater than the potential value of keeping these people on their toes, keeping them too busy feuding amongst themselves to, to, to be thinking anything else. Likewise, yes, we absolutely see these as being used. And again, this is, this is one of the points about this sort of notional um, unity of the, the intelligence agencies. I mean, often what we actually find are portions being taken. I mean, there, there, there was a, a part of the FSB that for a long time was regarded as essentially, I mean, they're actually called Sechin Spetsnaz um, under General Fyoktistov, who were you know, unleashed against his enemies. Now, for a long time, that was a deep embarrassment to FSB Chief Bortnikov. Um, and he kind of, over a long, lengthy period of time, maneuvered in a position where he could actually oust these people and, and dilute Sechin's control. But it says something that he had to basically take three years really to actually ease these people out and wait for them to make enough of a mistake that he could do so. You know, he did not control his own agency fully. We see other alliances across. I mean, at the moment you have an interesting case because obviously when, when we think domestically, we're also talking about agencies like General Prosecutor's Office, the Investigatory Committee where you actually currently have the investigatory committee trying to prosecute one of its own investigators on corruption charges that were instigated by the FSB, while the deputy prosecutor general rules those charges out of order. 
I mean, that, it, this is an incredibly messy, I mean, look, for, for someone like me, a kind of professional spook watcher, it's great fun because anyway, this is my unrolling soap opera with violence um, that I get to watch. But what it really underlines is the extent to which, you know, essentially this is a system which expects the, the boyars and the gentry to be constantly competing and fighting each other. And it continues until, and again, this is part of Putin's power, is he is the one person who ultimately can say, that's it, that's enough, you've had your fun, this is how the resources are gonna be apportioned, you're gonna be elevated, you're gonna be demoted, and this is where it's gonna be, and so it will be for a little while longer. He keeps his power precisely by being able to um, triangulate between the agencies, rather than being dependent on one of them or all of them. Mark, I want to go to uh, some questions that we've gotten in from uh, email and Facebook. Uh, first, from, uh, I'm going to butcher the name, Armando Chaguseda. Um, and he essentially asks, it's a long question, but I'll, I'll paraphrase, um, the degree to which most senior Russians, and, and he's asking not only about security services officials, but uh, all sorts, uh, diplomats, uh, even academics, uh, come out of the Soviet model, uh, the Soviet system in which uh, intelligence was so dominant. Uh, he asked about the, the so-called intelligence genes that may be uh, firmly inscribed in people all over the place. And of course, what this recalls for me, uh, I'm thinking about a, a line in uh, Catherine Belton's recent book where she sort of describes Primakov dismissively as a kind of a former spy chief, right? And that's, that's sort of true, but that's really not the first thing I think of when I think of Primakov, right? I mean, he's kind of the Russian Kissinger. He's a great sort of foreign policy uh, realist and intellectual. Uh, or, you know, I'm not going to name names, but they're even, even colleagues of ours, right, who, who may have military service in their backgrounds, what have you, sort of, there's this constant cottage industry of saying, maybe even discounting uh, the, the work in other spheres of Russian thinkers, diplomats, what after all, they all function basically as spooks. What's your take on all of this? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm skeptical for a variety of reasons. First of all, if you go back to Soviet times, I mean, the KGB was pervasive as an institution. Everyone was aware it was there. But on the other hand, it does not mean that everyone was in some ways actually part of it. And even if they were part of it, often, you know, the, the connections with, with a minimalist sort. If, if you were a diplomat, of course, you knew that you had to deal with, there were the people on the other side of the embassy. And therefore, at time to time, you, you, you'd be involved with them. But that didn't really influence you. Quite the opposite. You often wanted to keep them at ha arm's length. Much the same is true of, of, of academics. Um, yes, of course, look, there, there is a long um, and rather bloody tradition of powerful intelligence and security agencies within Russia, going back to pre-revolutionary times. And clearly, you know, if we look at the, the, the Stalinist spasm of terror, then clearly security apparatus was, was absolutely central there. But if anything, I think that actually um, a lot of exposure also means that Russians tend to be much more um, critical of the, the organs um, there is less, I think, of a, a, a culture of uh, romanticizing their activities. Sure, everyone's watched 17 Moments of Spring, much like Putin. And even today, you know, you can see the heroic representations on, in, in, in Russian TV and film. Um, but in my own interactions with, with, with Russians, um, even, even Russians of that 
generation. I mean, they are deeply aware of the extent to which actually the sort of KGB was also a, you know, a corrupt, unpleasant, and often deeply inefficient organization. So I, 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 am, I am skeptical about this attempt to try and find these kind of little crooked little bits of DNA that somehow define Russians as being different from the rest of us. But then maybe it's because I'm a Brit and therefore presumably I, I view the world in an imperialist mindset or whatever. You know, we, we, we have to accept that actually life moves on. Yeah, and life's much easier when you can simply put people in boxes. It's a very tiresome human and very human tendency. Um, another question comes in from uh, Danny Kenyon uh, from the U.S. military, and he asks a military-specific question. Uh, I'll just read it. Where do you see the role of the relatively new Special Operations Forces Command, the KSSO, in active measures and assassinations versus other agencies such as SBR, FSB, and GRU? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because obviously the Russians have their own special forces, the Spetsnaz. Um, the thing is, the Spetsnaz are a very big force, there's about 17,000 of them, um, and they do not have 17,000 supermen um, to throw in. I mean, so often, you know, they, they, they were special-ish forces, just more special than the average. Um, and really, they're just kind of elite light infantry. They're like kind of US Rangers or French mm -hmm. Foreign Legion or British Paris. Um, and I think they, the, the Russian general staff, in conjunction with the GRU, which is technically part of the general staff, but is also sort of semi-autonomous as an intelligence agency, decided they needed to have greater capabilities in the modern world. They needed tier one special forces. And this is what they created the SSO for. And it's interesting because if one looks at their deployments and their training, um, it's clear that you know, so far we've largely seen them in places like Syria, where they are doing the sorts of things you expect, expect special forces to do. But there is a very, very clear direct line with the GRU. Um, there is, a, you know, there, there is a, a high level of political briefing that takes place with, within the SSO and so forth. And I very much see this as if, if you are looking in the future for people to carry out active measures of, of the more bloody kind, um, the killing, sabotage or similar, I suspect that we'll start seeing SSO operators cropping up in that role. I mean, at the moment, with this, there's a lot being said about this GRU unit, GRU unit uh, 29155, um, who have been, seems to be behind everything going on in the world at the moment. They are essentially GRU, you know, one of their little in-house group of throat slitters, which any intelligence agency that plans to go out and do those kind of things has to have. It's clear that they're overstretched. And therefore, I think SSO, although their primary role is to be military special forces, um, it, there's, a strong second, there's a strong sense of the secondary role, which is precisely to be involved on the more sharp end of overseas intelligence operations. Um, let me go to another question. I think you, you addressed this in part. This is from uh, Valeria uh, Jegesman. Um, the, do, you, do you think the decision to pay bounties by the Russians to the Taliban uh, could have been made at a lower level without sign off, uh, sign off from top officials, or could it, could it be a, a bogus story? I think you've, you've addressed this, but if you want to just comment specifically on the on sort of what level, and then uh, also, can you comment on the Wagner Group? Uh, a question I know you've received many times before. <laughs> yeah. um, on on the bounties, if the bounty thing happened, I don't believe it could have been anything other than sanctioned higher up. Um, one could kind of imagine, particularly with the to Afghanistan, maybe some 
you know, GRU veterans who did their time in Afghanistan in the, in the Soviet Union's bloody war there, in which obviously they faced rebels who had, were being busy assiduously being armed by the United States. And they might have thought, well, it's only fair we, we, we pay them back. However, first of all, it would be very hard for them to operate in Afghanistan without orders. This is something they would have to be, they'd have to be in Afghanistan anyway for some reason, and they'd have a little sideline. But for me, the crucial thing is the money. Um, you know, the GRU does not just simply say, oh, and by the way, here's a few suitcases full of cash in case you think of something useful to do with it. Like all bureaucracies, you know, all monies have to be accounted for and, you know, signed off from half a dozen different people and receipts. The, the, the Soviet espionage agency is a very bureaucratic, uh, post-Soviet espionage agency is a very bureaucratic one. So to have access to money, if nothing else, for me, says, would require a significantly high level of um, approval. And once you get to that point, again, I think that there's no way someone would say, surely Putin doesn't need to know about this. They, they would have to have taken it up to the, the, the highest level. I'm so uh, glad you... Oh, go ahead, please. I mean, on, on, on Wagner, I mean, that, that could be a conversation in and of itself. I think that the, the, the two-minute answer instead of the two-hour one is, I mean, this was set up as a pseudo-mercenary organization, plain and simple. They needed uh, ground troops in Syria. They knew full well that the Russian population wasn't on board with that. Therefore, they needed deniability, not to, for the West, but to their own population. Because then, you know, a, a Russian soldier in Syria dies, it's, it's a big thing, state funeral, there's, there's a grieving widow and pensions and so forth. Wagner guy does, ah, oh, just some contractor who's working for Damascus, nothing to do with us. Um, so, you know, it clearly was, was, a, was a set up as a state fake mercenary organization. By 2016, I think the, the Ministry of Defense decided we don't really need it anymore. Um, instead of just simply dissolving it, um, Prigozhin was told, look, we might need this, so keep it around. And that's when Prigozhin, anyway, made it a real mercenary organization. And that led to the whole De Rizor, uh mess as he was just trying to sort of find ways of monetizing it. And still today, I mean, actually, Wagner operates on both sides of that boundary. Clearly, sometimes it's used by, by the Kremlin when it wants to do things. And at other times, it's basically Prigozhin making money, making a bit of political capital. Um, and I think, again, this, this is... I may question sometimes the use of the term hybrid war for what the Russians do, mm -hmm. but hybrid business absolutely explains this particular bizarre niche of Russia, of things that are once sometimes a state institution and at other times purely a money-making one. So uh, I want to make the best I, I, I can to get to all of these questions, but I, I just have to stop on this point I'm so glad you brought in about just how sort of bureaucratically rigorous uh, these Russian state organs can be, even when involved in what you know we in the West will often dub to be titanically corrupt and, of course, amoral activities. And that raises for me this, this very basic essential question, which is we know that the people at the top of the system are constantly bending and even completely breaking the rules uh, in order to enrich themselves. Uh, you know, how far down the system does that go? Do you have the equivalence of you know, Lieutenant Colonel Putin today in the Russian system playing all kinds of games to make money on the side? Do they have side hustles? Are they uh, using their offices to personally enrich themselves and their families? Does that kind of thing happen at a, at a low and middle level or, or really only with the titans at the top? Um, so it depends slightly in terms of the agency. I mean, if you're talking about the Foreign Intelligence Service, 
Um, it's a lot, a lot harder. We've seen certain cases of, of drug trafficking and so forth, but actually it's a lot harder if you're playing the role of the second secretary cultural in an embassy and also trying to recruit people. But then again, you also live the pampered life of, of a diplomat. Sorry, any diplomats watching. Um, but on the other hand, the FSB, and for me, the FSB is one of the most deeply corrupted institutions within Russia, because precisely they have relatively low levels of oversight and massive levels of powers that can be monetized. And the interesting thing is that a lot of the side hassles with the FSB is not actually, um, you know, a major thinking he can take over a business because, well, if you're a major of the FSB, you can't really run a business as well. It's more that actually, if someone wants to involve themselves in corporate raiding and doing everything from the pettiest of actually, I want, um, you know, I, I, I think that my girlfriend is cheating on me. I want her followed all the way up to, you know, I need 10, 10 muscle bound lads and a court, court notice, which will allow me to take over this business. You go to the FSB and, and they will provide that kind of, of, of service. If you know the right person, they can pretty much get you anything. But the interesting thing, going back to this bureaucratic business is they will still have to do the paperwork. Um, you know, even if actually what you're doing is just creating a totally uh, you know, bogus warrant so that someone's girlfriend's phone can be tapped and her location can be sort of monitored at all times. You can't just simply do it. You, there's still, there's paperwork, there's stamps, there's forms, like they, God, they love their stamps. Um, you know, and, and therefore, you know, unbeknownst to them, a whole swath of, of, of poor individuals in Russia are having, you know, suspected criminal ties being sort of written into a record somewhere um, because someone has to justify how they take out this, this warrant. So yes, very corrupt, and very bureaucratic at the same time. God bless bureaucracy. Without it, uh, who knows what historians would do. Um, all right, let me try to get through a couple more of these questions if I can. Uh, this is from Nicholas Morgan, uh, a freelance journalist and former University College London uh, student, who says, what do you make of Russian intelligence's operations in Turkey? Uh, Bellingcat connected recent Russian uh, operatives uh, and assassinations in the country. Uh, but the Turkish response has been muted. What does that tell you? Well, firstly, the interesting thing about I mean, a lot of the operations that we've sort of have come to light have basically been killings, killings of Chechens in Turkey. And here we have some which, if you follow the breadcrumbs back, essentially take you to the FSB, usually operating through the medium of hiring gangsters. This is a, a growing trend of theirs, that they're using criminals as uh, convenient proxies. Uh, and a fair number of killings that actually have nothing to do with Moscow and everything to do with Grozny. Um, Kadyrov has his own murder program that he doesn't bother running, running past uh, Moscow. The Turks, it's quite interesting because I mean, actually the Turks have demonstrated that they're perfectly willing to be very hard nosed in their dealing with the Russians. Um, if one thinks back to when they shot down a Russian bomber um, as it was just popping over uh, Turkish airspace uh, in uh, operating in northern Syria, um, the Russians were furious. Putin was clearly visibly furious. Um, there were sanctions, but basically Erdogan outputted Putin, faced him down, and it was the Russians who, after a little kind of non-apology, essentially backed away from confrontation. Now, why I think that's Im it's important to dwell on that is, in a way, the Turks have established their credentials, just as they are doing currently in in Libya that they are not easy marks. And I don't think Putin minds people being 
hard-nosed defenders of the national interest. He expects that. I think he, he gets more perplexed when people like the EU get all normative on him. No, no you know, he, he, he wants to tussle. From the, from the Turks' point of view, I think that, frankly, they don't care if Chechens get gunned down in Istanbul or Ankara. Um, in a way, that's, that's one less problem for, for them to have to watch. I think that, and I, I mean, I don't know this for certain, but I've had it kind of intimated that there are really some quite, um, quite explicit conversations that go on about what is and is not acceptable and what might or might not be going down and do you have a problem? Now, again, I'm not saying necessarily each of these assassinations gets run past the Turkish government first, but I have a feeling that there's an understanding that some things they won't make a, make a fuss about. And again, I, I think that just reflects the fact that this is a very, very pragmatic relationship they have. This is probably a, a very appropriate question to conclude on. I think we have just about a minute left. Uh, this comes from Henrik Larsen from the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich. He asks, do you have advice for how Western intelligence services, individually or collectively, could do a better job containing Russia's subversion and disinformation operations on their soil? Well, the answer is it's, nothing, it's not the problem for the intelligence agencies. Usually the intelligence agencies are doing a pretty good job. It's actually their, their political masters. And I think the, the key point is um, instead of the old dictum of speak softly and carry a big stick, we have a tendency to shout very loudly while waving a small twig. We, we harangue the Russians, we talk down to them, we demonize them without actually really doing anything that really causes them any, any, any significant problems. So I think we should, we should flip that round. We should be very nice to the Russians. We should actually, whenever we can, talk reasonably to the Russians. And this goes back to the point that you, you raised in your recent article about treating them, America treating it as its third neighbor. You know, realize that we can't do without them. And yet, when they do commit various transgressions, like assassinations and so forth, what we need to do is demonstrate solidarity. And I think the, the model of the post-Skripal global campaign of, assass of assassinations, and that was a Freudian slip there, expulsions of Russian diplomats, I think was a classic case study of what we could be doing a lot more of. Mark, I couldn't agree more. Uh, thanks for plugging the article as well. Uh, and thank you so much for joining us, taking so many questions and covering so much ground. We will My certainly have to do this again. Thank you all.